0: Uh, that's an, a, a very appropriate prayer uh, given our passage in Hebrews chapter 2. If you want to turn there with me, um, I've got my, uh, my new handy bookmark so I know exactly where I am in Hebrews. You can grab one of these prayer bookmarks in the foyer, you know, a little soft promo. Um, if you're just joining us, we, we've just begun a new series in Hebrews that we're calling Jesus is Greater we're sort of getting that title from a quote from Michael Kruger, uh, who wrote a commentary called Hebrews for You, and uh, he just sort of says there that Hebrews can be summed up in one simple phrase, that Jesus is better, Jesus is greater. There's nothing grander, greater, more beautiful, more wonderful, more satisfying, or more extraordinary than Him. So with that said, let's stand in honor of God's Word and and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this, uh, this gospel of, of life through Christ, of through faith in him, through his work to atone for our sins and to make us new. I pray that we would uh, be very attuned to it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. These uh, four verses give us what we could describe as a, a reliable message and a right response. So uh, I want to look at those two things this morning. And before we start talking about uh, a response to this message, um, let's talk about its reliability because what the author of Hebrews uh, tells us here is that there's at least four reasons why this message is reliable. It was First of all, it was declared by the angels. Uh, we also read that it was declared by the Lord. Uh, we know that it was attested by those who heard, those who were witnesses. Uh, and then there were also, uh, there's the witness of the Holy Spirit uh, through signs and wonders. So, so let's talk about the reliability of the gospel, the reliability of God's word to us. Uh, first of all, in verse two, we, we see that it's, this message was declared by angels and therefore proved to be reliable. Let me ask you a question, can you trust an angel? Are angels reliable? Can you imagine yourself as one of the shepherds keeping watch in the fields of your flocks by night when suddenly, lo and behold, the glory of the Lord appears in the night sky and the angel speaks and says, Behold, I bring you good tidings of good news that will be for all the people. The tidings of great joy today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Is Christ the Lord. You will find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And then you turn to your shepherd friend and say, can we trust this angel? Does that sound sound like common sense to you? Does that sound like spiritual sanity to any of you? You can trust an angel. An angel is a reliable heavenly spokesperson. In fact, uh, we've mentioned before that the Greek word that we translate into angel literally means messenger. They're messengers straight from the court, the heavenly throne of God. And I don't know if you can imagine the shepherds responding, why should we believe the angels? They're they're, they're not trustworthy, of course they are. Um, And all throughout Hebrews, we're we're gonna hopefully get the opportunity to to drill down and and see some of the Old Testament foundations like this whole archeological layer underneath the New Testament where you've got all of the Old Testament giving support and structure, especially to Hebrews. Um, you know, we, we looked at this in the past couple of weeks in, when we were in chapter one, how you know, all of these quotes from the Old Testament, seven quotes, You know, kind of these, this, this, you know, the case is shut, it's full, it's complete. Um, well, the angels who are inferior to Jesus nonetheless were these reliable messengers from God's throne room. And you can go all the way back to Sinai uh, and see how they were the messengers and the conveyors of God's word to Moses um, and to Israel when they received the law. Um, I'll go back to Exodus 23, just as an example, where God says, behold, I send an angel before you, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. He is a reliable spokesperson. He's a reliable messenger. You can trust him. So, you know, as you're thinking about this message that's reliable, it's been declared by angels and certainly we can, we can trust um, their, their testimony. But not only by the angels, as we uh, saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus, of course, is superior to the angels, and and he himself, you know, the Lord declares uh, his word. And that's what you see in verse 3, that the message was declared at first by the Lord and and then attested by others. Um, Some of you remember, uh, like all the way back in the 70s and the 80s, one of the most prominent evangelical voices, a uh, brilliant apologist and theologian named Francis Schaeffer talked about um, just how people think about God in a new way. Like he's there, like this, the, the ontological evidence for God that, that he speaks. He wrote a book called He is There and He is Not Silent. Like just the, the miracle and the, the grace the mercy of God just simply to speak to us. In that book, Schaefer says, there's nothing more practical nor more basic than the conviction that there is truth that can be known, divine truth, you know, God's word. Without this conviction, life becomes more and more intolerable And more and more filled with alienation, the more consistently we live with the loss of truth. Why is that? Well, if there's no such thing as truth, if God has not spoken authoritatively, singularly, saying this is what's real, this is what's truth. um, Well, then it's just up to us to fabricate to kind of cobble together my truth and you get your truth and guess what happens? Uh, Our Venn diagrams just become increasingly pulled apart to where there's less and less overlap between what my truth is and what your truth is. And that's what makes for more alienation. That's what causes more division. you know, conversely, the more humanity can agree though there is truth and God has spoken his truth to us and, and we all kind of get on the same page with that. Guess what that does to relationships and the people and communities and societies? Less division, more unity, you know, beauty, things like that. Hebrews 6, um, you know, I, I think this is helpful just to kind of look ahead because Hebrews has consistent themes that that resonate throughout, you know, the the entire epistle, Um, says that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, we're uh, at the end of chapter one, remember we were described as the heirs of salvation. Jesus is the heir of the Father, the firstborn of all creation. We are co-heirs with Jesus. And when God wanted to to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now there's, I want to pause right there. Two things just happened that we might've missed. God spoke his promise. God spoke. Is that reliable? Yes. God cannot lie. There's there's only truth in in who God is, by definition. Um, And so God made a promise to the heirs of, of, of salvation, the heirs of the promise. So just that simple promise is enough to rely on, but he didn't just make a promise, he also made an oath. He said, here's my promise and now I'm gonna swear. I'm gonna take an oath to validate that promise And then the verse continues, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Like we get all the more reason to be encouraged to hold fast to these promises, A, because God spoke and made a promise that I can rely on, And B, because in his mercy and his grace, he said, I'm going to give you an oath too. As if God would ever break his oath. He's not going to break his promise and he's not going to break his oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have all the more reason to to trust him. Because God has declared these things. He's spoken. And that's a reliable revelation. Have you ever thought about what a miracle it is that we even have theology? That that word itself comes uh, from like two Greek words that mean God's word. I mean, so so theology itself is God's words, right? And look, I, I understand that lots of people have different views of this book. You know, this is a Bible. Bible just means book, but, but we also believe that it's a holy book. It's God's word. And some take, you know, a, a more sort of restrictive view of this, and they say, well, it's not God's word, but it, it contains God's word. So that when you open it up and, you know, you read any part of it, you just are kind of having one of those potluck, you know, quiet times. I don't know. I'm just going to let let my Bible open. Oh, I'm in 2 Kings, you know, 18. And you you read and and you go, ooh, that spoke to me. You know, then, then, then that was God's word to you. you know, it contains God's word. But it's not God's word for everyone at all times and all places. You know, we, 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 we can't go that far. So they take a more restrictive view. It contains God's word. If, if you get a liver quiver as you're reading along, good for you. You got God's word. And then there's others that take... Maybe we could describe it as a more expansive view. Sure, it's God's word. Just like any other holy book is God's word. Just like the Quran is God's word or, you know, this holy book or that holy book. It's all, they're all God's word. And that sounds generous and expansive, right? But when you kind of put the, this restrictive view and this expansive view side by side, you realize they're actually just saying the same thing. It's all subjective. It's all just up to us to decide what we think is God's word and what isn't. Is that how theology works? Theology is God's word. Has he spoken or not, right? Like, is it our place to declare what God has declared and what he has not declared? Is that our role? How do we know? How how could we know? unless he has spoken. Like, if I feel, if I feel hungry, and I tell you, um, you know, I, should, I could sure use a snack right now, you know. Um, and then you look at me, and you say, no, you're not. <laughs> Is that your role, to tell me that I'm not hungry if I just told you I'm hungry? Do you, do you have that capacity, that wisdom, that, that authority in, over me? No, you don't. And then, I mean, at at, at most, I'd be confused by your response or or perhaps even offended. You don't speak for me. I get to tell you what I think. I get to tell you what I feel. And that's just how it works. You get to tell people what you think. And you get to tell people what you feel. Nobody speaks for you in that regard. Um, Let's look at this from another lens, like a more compassionate, maybe, uh, perspective. My wife is a speech-language pathologist at Woodrow Wilson Rehabilitation Center. And she's the augmentative and alternative communication expert uh, over at WWRC. Um, And and this means that she works with clients who will often need a device in order to communicate because they're nonverbal. Uh, maybe through um, some kind of cognitive uh, thing or, uh, or an injury, they don't have the ability to verbally express what they're thinking and, um, and what they're feeling. It doesn't have anything to do with their intellect, it's just an ability, right? They, don't, they, they cannot speak for themselves. So if you give them a device, maybe it looks like an iPad or even a phone, you know, with a, with a particular app on it, She works with all kinds of clients, some are young, some are old, and teaches them how to program that device so that it will say phrases on behalf of, you know, the the person using the device. And it's really remarkable how over, you know, the the course of working with her clients, she gives these previously voiceless people the ability to communicate what they think and what they feel. So now all of a sudden, grown men and women who weren't able to express themselves verbally before now have a device and they can say, you know, plug it in and say, I'm hungry. Oh, you know, and the, the people in their lives, their caregivers, their extended family go, oh good, what can we get you to eat? I'd like a Chick-fil-A sandwich please, you know, and just plug it into the device. And, they, and then all of a sudden it's, it's specific, it's accurate, you know, and what's beautiful is when these clients then finally have the capacity and the ability through the AAC technology to be able to tell their family who have been caring for them and serving them and taking care of their needs and they finally are able to say through the device, I love you. Can you imagine being a parent of somebody that you've been caring for for decades and you've never heard that grown child say, I love you before. And now can I have a Chick-fil-A sandwich? You know. Um, The ability to speak for ourselves is so vital. You are the authority on you. What you like, what you feel, what you don't like, what you don't want. And God is the authority on himself. What he likes, what he wants, what he doesn't like and what he doesn't want. There's no one else Who can declare those things except for God himself? And now, just kind of do a little thought experiment with me for a second. What if there was no such thing as theology? What if God was nonverbal? What if God never told us what he wanted, what he liked, what he disliked. Can you imagine groping about in the the dark of that lack of revelation and trying to make sense out of who am I and who are you and who are we and why are we here and what's this planet and what's the purpose of my life and your life? Like if we don't have God telling us why we're here and, and, and what life is about, what kind of darkness would we be living? kind of ignorance would define our existence. That's a curse to not have theology, to not have an idea of what's ultimately real, and why are we here, and you know what are we living for, and for that matter, what's worth dying for? How do we know what is God's revelation of himself? Hit, hit the pause button on that question, because there's there's one more you know thing that uh, not only does the Lord declare His words in verse three, but also we're told it's attested to us by those who who heard, right? Um, the apostles, for instance, John writes in his first epistle, chapter one, that that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So look, I, I don't need somebody contradicting me when I say I'm hungry and could sure use a snack, but I sure appreciate anybody else say, hey, did you hear that? hungry, he could sure use a snack. Let's go get him. I mean, thanks. <laughs> You're attesting to what uh, I, I, I want, what I like, what I don't like. It's nice when people affirm what we think and pass it on. We need witnesses. We don't want them to, to contradict us, but their verification, sure, thanks. We appreciate that. That's what the apostles are doing. Passing on God's words and verifying what he said and and telling others this is what God has spoken. So um, we're told in verse four that God also bore witness uh, by signs and wonders. This is another reason why this message is reliable because there's this evidence. Um, You know, it's it's not infrequent. As As you're reading through the Bible, you read about, People who are doing sort of miraculous things, supernatural stuff. And those miracles are not random, um, they're, they're not magic tricks, uh, just kind of for show. Consistently, again and again, whenever you see the supernatural on display, it's, it's attesting to the fact that the performer of that miracle is speaking God's words. It's it's proving the veracity of that spokesperson. Um, Now I want you to ask yourself, what would be the greatest miracle? What would be the greatest sign and wonder that would be the most compelling endorsement of God's spokesperson, of God's word? John, the Apostle John, tells us what that most compelling endorsement was. John chapter 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we got to see his glory, the the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus then comes on the scene, and he becomes the reason, the the indisputable reason why we can believe God's word. Through Jesus' incarnation, through his Crucifixion, through his resurrection, through his ascension, God's word becomes visible to us. And the reason why we can believe it is because nobody in their right mind would ever make that stuff up. And all you have to do is look at all the other holy books and places where people, you know, have claimed to speak for God. Now, Maybe one helpful clarification is, you know, all truth is God's truth. And so when you see rhyming and and echoes, you know, from the Bible to the Quran to other holy books, like, okay, it's all, all truth is God's truth, but any place where any other quote, you know, holy words contradict this word is not God's word. Why? Why? because Jesus is this word incarnate. And nobody would make up a God who comes and takes on our humanity and then goes to, the, through the shame and disgrace of a Roman cross in order to save those who are helpless to save themselves. Because every other worldview, every other religion basically boils down to the same common denominator, which is, you know what, with a little bit of sweat and a little bit of effort, and a little bit of spirituality, you can save yourself. When Jesus comes along, he says, no, you can't. I have to save you. And I have to do it by taking your place on an instrument of torture and death. Like, Who makes up a world religion like that? That has to come from outside of us. That has to be revelation. That has to be theology, like proper. In fact, it was just so incredulous and so repugnant to most people that they just rejected Christianity, early Christianity out of hand. That's just, that's nonsense. People still do today for that very reason. Nobody would make this up. This is Jesus coming and taking on our flesh and going to the cross and being raised from the dead and then bringing us along with him and uniting us into himself so that we too take on the, the, the status of sons and daughters and we get his record applied to us apart from anything that we do so that the father looks at us and says, well done, good and faithful service. That's remarkable. Boy, if it isn't true, what a tragedy. One thing to just mention on this topic of signs and wonders, you know, Jesus is the, the, the most compelling evidence, the most uh, remarkable sign and wonder of God's word, you know, proving that it's reliable. But there are places in Scripture where other people do miracles, not good people. Fake apostles, even demons. You know, uh, we're, we're told in other places that Satan can do false signs and wonders. So, rather than simply trusting those who seem to have, you know, some kind of power or some kind of ability, you know, the greatest sign that we now look for are those who proclaim the Jesus, the most compelling evidence. If those are, if we have people who are proclaiming Jesus and his gospel, there is no greater sign and wonder, which is why Paul would say in Colossians 1, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is, this is the reliability of the message that the author of Hebrews is talking about. Now, in light of the fact that it's been, you know, uh, attested by angels and declared by the Lord, and it's got witnesses. and and so on, what is our right response to this message? Well, we're told in verse two, that since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Remember that verse in Exodus 23, I was telling you just about a a little bit ago that this angel goes before God's people and we're to pay careful attention to him and obey his voice, do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. What what are these passages? How would you classify those kinds of of statements? Uh, They're cautionary, right? Uh, They're they're warnings, they're they're upside down yellow triangles telling us, say, be careful. And there's five of these kinds of passages in Hebrews. This is the first of the five of them. And, and look, before we kinda get a little bit, you know, feeling like our furs being rubbed the wrong way, look, this is what any loving parent knows how to do. When you tell a kid, hey, be careful, stay close, don't wander, I don't want you to get lost. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. You need to stay close. You need to not drift, you need to not neglect the fact that mom or dad are here, right? So this first warning is about not neglecting God's great salvation, right? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Just take a second and, and, and look at verse three and that word again, neglect. That's a strong word. Neglect is responsible for all kinds of awful things. Evil things. Do you know that people go to jail for neglect? You can go to, to jail for uh, involuntary manslaughter because you neglect to preserve the life of somebody who dies. You can go to, to jail for, for uh, neglect, willful neglect of your children if, 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 if a parent neglects to care for their, their child. There's this intentional passive abuse, it's harmful and it's destructive. So when we read the word neglect, don't gloss over that. Those who choose to neglect God's gift of Jesus are choosing to harm themselves and destroy their souls. Um, another passage later on in Hebrews chapter 10 says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who is trampled underfoot, the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and his outrage the spirit of grace. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Again, I want to try to keep this in that category of grace. This is great. These warnings are gracious to us. Just like a loving parent is going to warn their child, don't wander and don't drift. Um, I mentioned earlier um, uh, one, one, other, one theologian, another one I want to mention is uh, J.I. Packer, who wrote uh, a book called Knowing God, who I know some of you have read. If you haven't read it yet, it's fantastic. But um, he echoes this warning. He says that the world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business. For those who do not know about God, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfold, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. I just go back to that whole question of what if there was no such thing as theology? we'd be doing exactly what Packer's describing, sentencing ourselves. We would be sentenced to stumbling and blundering through life blindfolded with no sense of direction, no understanding of who we are and what's around us. Nothing to say, this is real, this is not. And so don't neglect that, right? Um, There's there's a a real consequence to neglecting that. Uh, And therefore, in verse one, we're to pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we, lest we drift away from it, right? We, we've all got this propensity to drift. We, we're prone to wander, Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God we love. We just sang about that, right? We, we've all got this, this, this is different um, from deliberately neglecting the gospel. This is more like sort of spiritual ADD where no matter how hard you try, You know, it's just difficult to to stay focused on God's Word because, you know, our attentions drift and they they flit around and we go, hey, squirrel, you know, um, we lose our focus. This is true for all of us. It's endemic. God in His mercy understands this. He knows this, which is why in His kindness He makes what is invisible visible. He makes His Word visible visible to us so that we can have an easier time paying attention. What, what if you could see the Word? Right, I mean, we see light, and we see light waves. We, we see the visible spectrum of light, right? Rainbows, you know, that spectrum and so on. We don't see all the, the wavelengths of light. But we, what we see is, is, is light wavelengths that are visible to us. But we can't see sound waves, or can we? There was a German physicist, uh, Ernst, uh, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, Kaldney, I think it is, um, would, uh, on the front of your bulletin are, are six different images of, of Kaldney plates where, I don't know, 150 years ago, maybe it was almost 200 years ago, he, he, he took these metal plates um, on, a, on a single axis and he would sprinkle sand or salt or, or, you know, sugar on top of this metal plate and draw a violin bow or a cello bow across the edge of that metal plate, and it would create sound waves that would go through that metal plate. And wherever the nodes were, the sand or that substance would be attracted to the node. The anti-nodes would be these empty areas, and they would make these beautiful shapes. And those are sound waves that are making those shapes on those metal plates. Um, some of you are Lord of the Rings fans and you watch the Rings of Power series. And did you know the opening title sequence are these these Caldney plates, these, you know, um, this was the two trees of valor, uh, where those are, you know, using those sound waves to create these patterns on these plates. So when we wanna see the word, that's gonna help us pay attention to it. And I love how the apostle John, when he's, writing Revelation, right? This book that's so kind of like mysterious and we think it's so hard to understand, but it's really just the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's, he says he's in the spirit on the Lord's day and he hears behind him a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then there's this beautiful expression how he turned to see the voice that was speaking to him. Not not that he turned to see the person speaking to him, but he turned to see the voice and the voice, the word was visible to him. And on turning, I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. And Jesus is the one who gives us this greater revelation of God. As as Chapter one in Hebrews has already told us the exact revelation imprint of his nature, of his character. He's the image of the invisible God. So Jesus gives us God's word made visible so that we can have an easier time of paying attention, so that we're less likely to drift away because we don't just have words, we have a person. And in God's kindness and his mercy toward us with our spiritual ADD, he also gives us his body and his blood which is why we need the Lord's Supper. We need these tangible, visible, tactile reminders that this is God's word to us. We need the church. We need the body and bride of Christ. We need our brothers and our sisters around us to remind us that this is real. This is God's spirit dwelling in one another. We speak God's words to one another. We verify God's words to one another. We comfort one another with God's words. We challenge one another with God's words. And we become those faithful messengers too. So that's our response, right? We have this, this greater revelation through Jesus who also gives us a greater salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Jesus gives us the greater revelation and greater salvation that God offers us through his gospel. So, you know, like, I mean, it just... It's not complicated. How should anybody think that they would escape the consequences of their sin if they neglect the one who loved us and gave himself for us? Why should anyone think they would escape, you know, cosmic retribution for sin if we're going to neglect Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for sinners? Why should anybody expect that they're going to not have any accountability in this universe if they neglect his victory over death through an empty tomb? Why should anybody expect that they would escape if they neglect the one who has been exalted above the angels? Why should we escape if we neglect the one who has shared his inheritance with us, making us his sons and daughters and bringing us into this family of faith. If we neglect that, how shall we escape if we neglect the one who has given his body and his bride, the church, to us in order to know him better? You know how when you're driving along and you see that flash on your phone, you've got that little phone mount or whatever, and you're just, oh, I'll just take a quick peek to see who's texting me. Who is that? And then you're just looking down for half a second. It just takes half a second. And you're looking down, and then you look up, and you go, I'm already, you know, you've already got to compensate because you're already heading into the median. Half a second. You kind of, you you're jarred back to your senses, and you go, okay, both hands on the wheel. Not going to look at that phone. That was stupid. You know. Or Maybe you've been on, you know, 64 on your way to Richmond. You know, getting from here to Charlottesville, no big deal. It's kind of nice. Scenery's nice. And then you go from, Rich, uh, from Charlottesville to Richmond, and you've got to go through the Green Tunnel. And it's just the same for 45 minutes. And it's 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That strobe thing's going on with the sun, and you're starting to kind of go, you know, the coffee's worn off, and you're just, I've got to stay awake. I've got to get to Richmond. I can't pull over. No. I got to, I'm just gonna. Get, I'm just gonna bear it through, and then, and then it happens. Right, that half second where you, you almost went to sleep behind the wheel. You could have woken up in a hot mess in 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 the ditch. And you, you, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, you're wide awake then, right after that. I mean, I don't, I, I've only heard about these things like from here to, I don't know. I, this is what people tell me. Look, the book of Hebrews is God's gracious warning to us all to, to, to stay awake at the wheel and to not get, be distracted on the road to glory and to not drift, you know, to, to, to neglect such a great salvation, but to hold on to Jesus, the author of, and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and scorned its shame, revealing the glory of God's word to us. He is our theology. He is God's word revealed to us. Anything that agrees with him, yes and amen. Anything that disagrees with him, no. It's not God's word. Don't be distracted. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your mercy to us, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would speak to us, that you would not leave us in the dark to grope around trying to know who we are and who others are, and and at best, just to guess who you are. We are so grateful for your your word to us, uh, for your Bible, but... But more importantly, from Jesus, your word made flesh, your word made human like us, so that we can know your love, so that we can know your salvation, so that we can know your forgiveness, your justification, your, your sanctification, your glorification, your adoption, so that we could have all of these privileges of the kingdom of God. Lord, for maybe for, for those of us who were who, who are neglecting these things, Lord, would you Would you call us back to our senses not to neglect the fact that you have spoken but to come out of the darkness and into your light. Lord, would you grant these friends faith and repentance to trust you, to believe on you. And Lord, for the rest of us, we are all prone to drift. We are prone to wander. We feel it and we pray that you would continue to be the anchor for our soul, that you would keep Jesus in front of us, this compelling and beautiful reason to hold fast and to stay in our lane and to not drift when we pray for that grace through your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name.